0: Hi, this is Sam Ramji, and you're listening to Open Source Data. Today, I am excited to be joined by two guests who are practitioners in the AI native stack. We have Dr. Sharna Parkey, who's been developing business-to-business artificial intelligence and machine learning products over the last 17 years. She's worked with 90% of the Fortune 100 in her various roles, and through the acquisition of Cascada, is currently a real-time AI product and strategy leader at DataStax. Sam Bean has been developing production machine learning and AI systems for half a decade and is currently a staff engineer at u.com working on large language models, building a highly personalized search engine. Welcome Sam and Sharna. So Sam, you come to us through a recommendation from from Bob Van Lout at Weeviate. He and I got a chance to chat last week. They're doing awesome during the fundraising process. And it seems like their platform's on fire. And he was like, you're going to love talking with Sam Bean. So here I am, psyched to learn more about <laughs> you and uh, this whole environment, actually. You and Sharna are both much more practical and hands-on with AI than I've been. I graduated with a degree in AI and neuroscience in 1994, so it's been a long time since I did anything applied. So I was inspired by Bob's articulation some months ago about this idea of an AI-first database ecosystem. We hit a bunch of the elements that he talked about, but a couple that you didn't were the neural framework, which he identified, Haystack and Gina as examples of that, and then feature stores like FeatureForm, FeatureBase, Tecton. Curious to get a sense of those have a place in your pantheon or if those are things to be avoided or worked around or just not in your list of needful things just
1: yet i think mostly falling into the latter i think that the value starts to shine much more when you're working with semi-structured data sets where you're going to calculate a lot of ranking features offline. And you might tweak those calculations or your definitions, you might have business definitions that flow into features, lots of stuff like that. And you have 100 features that flow into some big XGBoost model. When you're munging tons of features like that together, the feature store starts to shine a lot more. But in the semantic search space, you're just working with embeddings, and you're just working with keywords. And so like versioning that is pretty tightly coupled to versioning your model. And usually they're just hand in hand. And so I haven't found a specific time when we've had to individually version features in a setting where we didn't retrain an embedding model and have to just go re-embed everything anyways. And so like, there's no real bang for your buck as far as bringing a feature store into play there.
0: Interesting. Sharni, you spent a lot of applied time at Textio building out customer facing solutions to pretty deeply thorny problems around meaning right as sam's Mm -hmm. talking about semantic search i'd love to hear you talk a bit about the problem you were solving and the stack that you're bringing to bear back then because that was a few years ago and i think part of what's going to be really interesting for our audience is to get a sense of the state of the art how's it been moving where is it today i think part of the really cool part of the conversation will be like what do each of you imagine that it may look like a year or two from now So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about your experience at Textio and how that stack that you were using at the time informed what you've done in the last few years with Cascada.
2: So Textio, I I joined back in March of 2015 before they even had sort of a language model. But the idea is slightly different than just what are the patterns in language and can we see what's similar and what's different and how do we group words? Like certainly we used lots of components in order to understand what are the stems of these words? How do we provide synonyms and things like that? But that wasn't the point of the language model. So the point instead was to understand how our words and the language that we use impact the outcomes. And so in that world we definitely did have components of need for things like feature stores and versioning and things like that although feature stores didn't exist at the time we had a very rudimentary way of figuring that stuff out. But essentially we were trying to say what words and phrases are going to attract the most qualified candidates to job postings. What words and phrases are going to attract or deter various age groups, demographic groups, whether it's gender, ethnicity, I- any type of component. Because we know that as language changes over time, as the children that we talk to today, we can barely understand what they're saying, let alone know what they mean. We and know that that's a feature
0: that- from their perspective.
2: Exactly. And so we know that that's going to change. And we know that communities adopt these types of linguistic differences to differentiate themselves. Like my PhD is in signal processing. If I try to go talk to somebody in control theory, we're talking about the same thing, but using fundamentally different words. And it takes a good 20 minutes just to use the same language, but that's how you identify as part of an in group or an out group or what have you. And so a step further than what are people saying today, but but towards what is its impact. And so in that stack, we had a lot of the embeddings and things like that, but also what's the impact tied to that as well.
0: And how do you measure that? Was there a part of the stack that you used to be able to get that signal? I mean, with my background in a long time ago, in neural networks, I tend to think about what you're describing as a representation model. And there's probably a hidden layer or multiple layers somewhere along the line. And then you've got this impact question, which is like, did the outcome match what you were looking for? And how do you back propagate that system to make sure that you're making the right recommendations. How did you think about that a quarter century after I was practicing when you were doing this stuff at Textio?
2: Yeah. So we had to have this grounded in actual outcomes. As you can imagine, if you're in a sensitive space like hiring, you have to be able to prove if you introduce something like this, whether or not you're introducing bias or not into the hiring process. And the intent is to remove it. And so we would actually go and for the customers that were, sort of the not free tier, try it out, trial customers, but actual customers where they rolled this out across entire organizations, we had a data exchange program. So we would have the words that they wrote in the platform, but we'd also get the outcomes from the ATS of what actually happened with that job posting. And so the models would get measured on its performance every time we got a data exchange file to understand what was its impact really and update the various models and things like that. We did this across, not just on a per company basis, cause that's very risky. You don't wanna encode a particular company's bias into things, but across industries and across regions, et cetera. So we'd combine all of that data as sort of this more neutral third party and say, okay, for engineering or across all organizations, Here's what is happening with language, et cetera. And so we had to actually go and close that loop and both do sort of performance checks of how do we do historically and modify the model for moving forward.
1: I usually think of feature composition, especially when you're talking about mixing what it sounds like demographic information, information about the companies, but also your neural embeddings and mixing together the very interpretable features with the very non-interpretable features. And usually if you have composites of those features moving up a tree, where these two features end up being cross features to this one, and then those end up crossing into this other feature, and then at the top of your God model that makes the final decisions. And usually like where you are in a tree of changing a feature definition or something, if you had these stores in place, usually you only have to like go up the tree to retrain from there so how did you think about decomposing some of that especially because it sounded like you did have this very rich composition of the language model features with some of the more structured data that we've been working with for decades
2: yeah i mean it was ended up being a very complex process and they have since since i've left branched out into many more types of writing but essentially it came down to where were we seeing the language change? We track words over time, essentially. And we would be able to say, all right, this is a word that attracts more men than it does women to apply to job postings. And we would see how it would statistically change over time. We'd have it across many different words. And sometimes you would start to see words not make an impact at all. So depending on how we were tracking both the performance of the overall model, but also the performance of each word, we would need to go back to different points of the stack to say, okay, we need to discover new parts of the language that are having impact and not just track what we already have. I don't know if that quite answers the question, but there are things that I can talk about and there are things that I can't talk about because they are not an open source model. They're a closed proprietary thing. So with the the best hand waviness that I can provide you.
1: (laughs) But I think What you were just talking about actually brings up another question that I have, if you don't mind, is that it sounds like you have these different companies and the different language that attracts different people. And that can be, to your earlier point with bias, is also like a feature and a bug, right? Where the bias is problematic. On some level, you need some bias in the system because you want to attract certain people. You don't want to attract Creative writers to a job of engineers, and so the language should reflect that. And so there's a certain level of bias that is desirable within the system, and then there's some bias that is not. And how did you tease all of that apart working with systems like that? Was it a very subjective type of process working through what was the type of biases that were desirable versus not?
2: I wouldn't say that it was subjective. We were very clear and intentional both with the customers and the data. So. It's a highly regulated space. So there are clear forms of bias that we can't have it. But other forms of bias, like I may get the most qualified candidate, maybe some technical components, but maybe some brand components as well. I love this story. It was actually a data scientist that used to work at Textio. He loved language. He went to school for language, but his passion outside of work was running. And so eventually he ended up moving on to another company where he could apply data science at a running application. And so this type of a fit means when you can align someone's passion with their skills, you get a better performance out of that person. And so the way that we would try and actually pick apart is this Something that actually contributes to performance is asking for that data and measuring with that data. So we would have not just one measure about whether or not a person was hired, but we would also get information like what stage of the application process did they make it to and how far past it, how many years, what was the tenure? And so we would start to see language patterns in the data that was only associated with other components of performance and not any of the demographic data. Those would become brand words for that company that would be attracting people that are successful at their company. And so we'd have to intentionally make sure that the phrases that made it into the product were not the ones that were attracting more men and led to better performance, because that could be a bias indicator. That could be, okay, that's just how they promote internally. So we'd have to actually go through and make sure for every component that it was a performance indicator and not a bias indicator before it made it in for those types of phrases. It was tough, <laughs> tough path.
0: That's a complicated problem. Yeah, I'm curious to get a sense of how the stack is shifting now, right? Because the last couple of years you've been focusing on accelerating. ML delivery, real-time ML. It was interesting to hear Sam say that he was using Spark for streaming. Obviously, there's a lot more movement in that of late than there has been for a while. We're seeing a bunch of streaming data models. And does that need for speed change the nature of the AI native stack? It has to, I assume. And I'm curious to know what you've been seeing of late, Sharna.
2: Yeah, it certainly does. The need for speed changes not just the stack itself, but also the types of problems you can solve. So we can look at companies like Netflix or Instacart before they had real time, before they had this need for speed. And then all of a sudden they needed it. And once they needed it and they started figuring out, okay, how do I get this speed into the system? They discovered a bunch of questions they could answer today that they couldn't before. So let me break that apart a little bit. In the world where Instacart had highly tuned models, where they knew restock times and they knew what people were searching for and there was less uncertainty in the world, they could make these long lasting models and retrain less frequently. But what they realized and what the pandemic caused was chaos on all four sides of their marketplace, both for what people were searching for because supply chains were disrupted and people were coming to Instacart for things that They normally didn't, and they didn't even have item availability for those types of items, but also for store hours and restock times and who was available and willing to go shopping when there's all of this exposure out there. And so their need for speed came when the world changed, but that was a dramatic shift. For companies like Netflix, it's a different kind of need for speed. The market itself is creating this demand of personalization and creative suggestion that we didn't need before. Netflix could retrain once a night on what to suggest for you to watch tomorrow, but now there's streaming services everywhere. And I don't know about you, but I have Apple TV and Hulu and Prime Video and Netflix. And when I get upset with one of them, I go to a different one and I check back in a couple of weeks to see if they got their act together. But they are creating this pressure in the market itself and the users are demanding it. And so we've seen the stack change a lot and we've seen these companies start to better understand that these streaming technologies have a place, whether it's Kafka or Flink or Pulsar, but it's still incredibly difficult to use and we need a different level of abstraction. So the point that Sam made earlier about push it to the database. I am want to be a lazy engineer. Application engineers want to be lazy too. Experts want to be lazy too. They want to have what they bring uniquely to the table and not have to go learn all these bespoke things. So we're starting to see the stack change so that it becomes more interchangeable of the components and try to raise that layer of abstraction so that we can get these types of models and these types of capabilities to more people.
0: And what are the discrete changes that you're seeing that Signal the team is going from? more batch and sort of the perfect model to something that's more real-time and adaptable. What were they using before that they no longer use or what are they augmenting it with?
2: Yeah, so in the past, they were often only collecting sort of aggregated data. And on that aggregated data, they would say, I've defined in the actual collector, I want to store every time somebody who's, search something five times, that's a very poor and simple example, but we see companies move away from this storing of aggregated data to event data. Once we see that shift happen and they start to amass that kind of data from any sort of mobile application or especially e-commerce platforms or sensor systems, once they're storing that event data, they start to try and process that. And when they start with something like Spark, not the streaming side, but just Spark, and They're trying to create views of that data for their data scientists. They realize that Okay, I'm creating a layer there that the people who need this information can't get to so we see them move out of spark and into other technologies like having something like Kafka and flink and generally start to build their own type of Abstraction on top of it so that they can make adoption easier We'll see even changes in the people that they employ so they might have, at first, you know, data engineers and data scientists, but then they're going to introduce some middle layer of MLEs where their data scientists aren't able to get quite as expert level on the technologies that they're introducing. And so they introduce this middle technical layer of person to translate and hand code things between, okay, you used something offline that's very batchy, but we need this to be real time. I'm going to go rewrite everything you did and make new data pipelines, et cetera. So we see a lot of infrastructure changes, but we also see organizational and people level changes as well.
0: Thank you. Sam, I'm super curious about the purpose of the stack that you're building. If you could talk a little bit about the problem that you.com is solving, what makes it fascinating to you? And then maybe a little bit about What's hard about the problem? Because obviously not everybody is doing, as the front page declares, an an AI-powered search engine, which always cracks me up because AI is search and search is AI. But you.com is obviously breaking a bunch of new ground for what you're doing. So I'd love to hear you talk about it a bit and what are the hard problems that that soft, candy-coated exterior is hiding.
1: I think just to take the question and try and even address part of it, I think even what Sharna was discussing with personalization is a huge part of it. I think that a lot of what you need to adjust to are these, what you were discussing is like I call like interaction data, you're calling it event data. But these are interactions that people have with the internet and trying to find ways to model that in a way that, even if your models aren't real-time, having ways to featureize real-time data in a way that's interpretable by a model. So you might not be updating weights, you might not be updating the model as you go, but having real-time feeds of data via some sort of like featureization mechanism. I've used behavior sequence transformers in the past, which try to take... The real-time feeds of data and turn it into some sort of embedding like you would a sentence instead of strings of words, you have strings of clicks and searches and bounces and stuff like that. You take some of the same problems that we've been solving in NLP and solve them for personalization I built a bunch of personalization systems in e-commerce, but in e-commerce you have a much less of a high precision requirement. You can go way further just relying on recall in those settings because you just cast a very wide net and a lot of the time you're building recommendation algorithms and you don't have to be really high precision because people love to scroll and they'll just scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll. And so like, why would you be precise? You know, the person's going to sit there and, and go through everything anyway. But with search, you introduce these very high precision requirements where you can't really just cast a really wide net. So your personalization might tell you all of these things about a person, but if the exact action that they're taking right now is completely contradictory to everything that they've ever given you in the past. You can't just be like, well, my personalization model says that you should be looking for running shoes, even though you're searching for, I don't know, pinball machine parts. And so like, I'm going to show you running shoes anyway. That's not how it works. But like, there are also those times when you have to use that personalization data to maybe disambiguate certain situations. And so you add in these requirements to be very precise, because if people are using you for a search engine, they are expecting you to be a tool to make their life easier. And so like, if you don't give them the right answer on the first time, you're no longer making their life easier. And so I think that those requirements, but with the expectations that I think a lot of people have for their systems being very personalized at this day and age, also means that you have all of this creeping type of recall expectations that may be more grounded in your personalization models that didn't exist 10 years ago. So I think between those things, you really have to toe the line, and you have to be really, really good with understanding your user intents, if there's different like modes of people who, like, if I'm on an e-commerce site, I've got usually like two modes: I am window shopping or I'm looking to buy. And there isn't like a lot of gray area there. With search, there's so many different modes that I could be in. I could be doing anything. And with where that trend is going, with these tools that are very quickly going to be doing things for you, vis-a-vis action transformers and stuff like that, that are just gonna be like, I'm gonna have stuff that just like, is me and just does everything that I would do throughout a day. except I'm just going to have a transformer model, it's going to predict what I'm going to do. I think that you have all of these different things that you have to be predictive about because the amount of surface area that you have to model is just very wide. I think that if I could boil it down, it's that balancing really high precision with I think a lot of the expectations that have come from personalized content is really, really challenging and knowing when to rely on which different types of Precision recall trade offs, depending on these very vast user intents, that as a search engine, you have to be able to handle because there are so many different modes that a person could be in when they're using your site, which I think is much wider than a lot of the common e commerce settings or maybe streaming media settings. And so for us, back to I think where what we were discussing, which is why. Real-time data, why Spark, why all of these things that we're setting up is the agility that it gives you. Those systems are very malleable. You can do whatever you want in them. And so I think setting yourself up with systems that can supply data in either a real-time format, you can materialize it and give offline data sets to people, I think you have to be really agile with your data in ways that you didn't have to, and you might still not have to in other industries. And you can just rely on a data warehouse that's got all of your data in one format, and that's how you query it. I think Spark and Kafka and Delta and all of those things give you a lot more flexibility now to move in different directions and readjust and re, I, I think, pivot what you want to do with a system.
2: It's actually quite fascinating because more and more industries are moving towards this context, intent action behavior model, right? And I don't know about you, but I hate it when my e-commerce sites tell me that I want running shoes or have decided that since I'm buying a baby shower gift that I'm pregnant, I'm really not. It keeps happening. Please stop doing that. So even with some of The practitioners I've been working with in e-commerce, they are moving away from, to your point, here's who you are, and moving towards, here's your in-session intent. And how do those micro-intents change over time? So when you think of, like, if I'm using a search engine, I might say, look up a blog about a DIY project. But then I'm going to go to Home Depot and I'm going to be like looking for each of these items at my local Home Depot source. So I'm actually using Home Depot as a search engine to understand if I can actually execute on this plan. And if I can't, what could I maybe use instead to still achieve the same outcome? And so there's this connection between, at least as an end user for me wanting my behavior intent and action right now to be the most important thing like please forget about who you think i am and let me do this and sometimes i even go like incognito mode so that it will stop (laughs) right so that i can get to the outcome that i'm looking for but yeah that's a great point sam because we're doing this across everything including the streaming services too where i don't really want more of the same comedies i want you to bring me new content How do we get that instead of me having to change services and be a different person somewhere else?
1: Yeah, I feel very similarly with recipes where I'll very quickly gauge. I'm like, am I going to make this? And I look at the number of ingredients. I'm like, "Mm, that's 50. No, 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 no. I (laughs) I can't do that. And so readjust what I'm going to go cook for the night.
0: It's a really fascinating conversation about not just what are the hard problems, but what you're both Mm -hmm. implying is that user expectations have changed substantially. When I go back to the first time I used Google, maybe in 2001, 2002, it was just so much more efficient than Yahoo. The search results were so much crisper. And then over time, we wanted more out of it. I worked for Google for a few years, and one of the things that was really cool is we got to hang out with some of the leaders in other groups. I was in cloud, but I got to talk with some of the search and the ads folks. And one of the search leaders gave an amazing talk on, are users going on a journey and Google is not coming along with them? And this is about 2017, 2018. What that person was articulating is they're using the search engine to look up places in Tennessee. They're using the search engine to look at ticket prices and hotels in Memphis. And then they get busy and they come back in three weeks. And now they're ready to plan and buy their trip because they have a journey that they're on. And the search engine starts with what would you like to do today? And it's forgotten all that stuff. So some of the comments that you made on recall, Sam, right, that was back in seventeen eighteen. there was already a clear expectation that Google users wanted to see a lot more attendance to what I've been doing with you lately let alone knowing what I want right now in this predictive experience. And I think there's a certain collective paroxysm of optimism and anxiety and maybe dismissiveness around ChatGPT. But I think the chat interface surfacing something that looks even more approximate to an in-session intent, understanding me, helping me go where I am, who knows if ChatGPT survives as a phenomenon? But this general sense that I'm talking with a more intelligent agent that is conveying the information that I want from the world to me now. I'm curious to see what you two are experiencing or what you think is true about the changes in user expectation that are showing up now and how you're anticipating that being realized in the next generation of our AI native stack.
1: I guess to answer a question that you sort of asked, maybe not explicitly, is if it's not the chat piece, it's going to be some of these other advents that are coming along with this generative piece. The data augmentation or retrieval augmentation, either of those mechanisms to prime models is probably going to be a fixture of search engines for the foreseeable future. I know Salesforce announced that it's coming to Slack in the next few months. It's going to be everywhere. It won't be everywhere in probably a few years, but it'll it'll still be in a few places. I find it kind of funny because I think that like really what we've built are better summarization tools. And Google's had quick answers for like years and years and years, but it was really just some flavor of DPR where they were able to go through a document, they could retrieve the right passage, and they put it in front of you, they highlight it. And now we have these really advanced summarization systems, which I think it's probably gonna stick around I think that what it's going to mean is that the data that you have to supply with these models and what you actually tell it to do is going to be the real differentiator. People are going to figure out how to prompt these models, and people are going to figure out that you can get over hallucinations in certain ways by just feeding information via the retrieval augmentation. And it's going to all be about what it's always been about, which is like the data that you have and when to leverage that data to augment some of these now, these generative tools that are advancing. I just think it's funny that in a few months, whenever GPT-4 comes out, we're going to have like a trillion parameter model that's a quick fact system. It's like, okay, like, I guess we can do that, but it's going to be cool, but I, I don't know how we got here. It's just a little bit silly. And it's going to cost millions of dollars of data. Oh, around, yeah. Let alone the billions to train it. Right? It's super hard. People are going to be clamoring to just like, give them all of the money.
0: But it's interesting to look at how that has suddenly seized the public perception of what's possible. And everybody likes to call it AI. For me, AI basically is a synonym for magic. When we're talking about math, we're usually talking about ML or Bayesian models or whatever. But the pressure of user expectations is probably going to show up in a lot of sudden board and C-level conversations, which are going to make their ways down into tons of the practitioners who listen to the open source data podcast so i'm wondering what the two of you can offer in terms of anticipating hey when your cxo email gets forwarded to you and says okay we need to have a more intelligent conversation with our users in this modality and they don't have anything for that where would you guide them to start looking because we've got Literally, millions of data scientists who are about to have to adapt to a new set of executive expectations, let alone user expectations. Sharna, I think you're doing this every day, and I'm sure Sam's got thoughts too.
2: You both have said so many things that have stirred up my inspiration model here. I think that the C level executives have some level of excitement as well as some level of fear associated with what is going to be be demanded of them with these new user expectations. You sign up for ChatGPT and it says, don't put anything sensitive in here. And they show you that once and then it goes away. And then all of a sudden, somebody pastes in their proprietary code base and someone pastes in contracts that shouldn't be put in there in order to get something out of it. Because what if I could use ChatGPT to summarize the patterns that happened in my calls this week with my customers? Wouldn't that be great? That takes me not just time in terms of productivity, but it takes creative time for me to come up with who am I writing this for? Am I a C level executive writing this for my board? So, what's the right level of that information? And can I somehow spin this narrative in a way that achieves a goal that I want to achieve? So, it it is always tempting. To try and use some of these things to go in different directions and so if i were being demanded by my board to use something like this to meet my customers expectation i probably wouldn't have my data scientists use this one <laughs> but My data scientists would want to, they're like, but it's a large language model. It's very expensive. We can't build this ourselves. Maybe we can modify it ourselves. Can we get something close to it? What can we get off the shelf? It creates this level of anxiety of how am I going to make it work? How am I going to get this in there to our users when I can't even answer basic behavioral questions today, let alone build my own large language model.
0: So it it changes a little bit the expectations of what our basic competency, I think, is part of what you're pointing out, right? The form of the email is not going to tell you what to do. It's going to say, what's our chat strategy? And then it's going to work its way down from pointy-haired bosses to people who do the work, and they're going to have to have an answer. Is that
1: really any different than it's always been for people in the ML space? I mean, you might call it now it's chat, but like, I've had the same conversation for years and years. years. What's our personalization strategy or what's our forecasting strategy? Whatever it is, it's always been the same thing when you're in the AI space or machine learning space. It's just that now this is the flavor of the week that it is, but it's not a different conversation. I think that it's very similar to the other ones where you just commoditize a different part of it. And so you have to make new decisions maybe, but it's not... Wholly different in the sense that you have to understand what the differentiators are of your business and what you have to offer that other people don't. And then, how do some of these new tools now come in and augment that and maybe amplify some of those things for you? But your business isn't going to fundamentally change, probably. Now you're going to have new tools because now some new capabilities are commoditized and understanding like which those are and Sharna, to your point, understanding when you have to build your own and when you can take something off the shelf. It's a very similar question. It's just this new dimension of it around generative things that I think has many more degrees of freedom with the outputs. And so I think there's some anxiety there for sure.
0: Well, there's almost a new shelf is kind of what I'm hearing the two of you point at. One, you speak very comfortably, Sam, given your experience about Hugging Face, which is a model repository. And so any repository, if it's assumed to be part of your core competency to be good at your job, means that you also have a pretty good idea of what is the space of possibility of these different models? What's the use of those different tools? When I think back to, again, uh, a couple decades ago when I was moving as a programmer from C++ to Java. In C++, you could just be really good at the language and you knew a few libraries, but you built a lot yourself. But in Java, if you didn't know Java namespaces and all the different packages, then you weren't a competent engineer, no matter how good you were at distributed systems and coordinate transaction coordination or whatever. Fast forward to today, if you're building you know, web interfaces, you better know your React. If you're building backend systems, you better have a point of view on what you're doing with NPM. So the expectation of competency of what's in that, hugging faces, a repo for all these models and what you can produce rapidly, I think changes. And the reason I point out rapidly is that when markets catch fire, when user expectations change, the fundamentals of what you do might not be different as a practitioner, but the level of heat changes dramatically. I was coding internet gateways. And then one day it was like, oh, we're now going to build a consumer photography service. And that's going to be the fortune of everything that we're doing or not wow, the importance of what we were doing in the scalability internet gateway just transformed. Yes, it's the same stuff, but with 10x the pressure, right? some elements of what the human practitioners are are doing
1: changes.
2: Yeah, I think this idea of pressure and back pressure is fascinating here, where the user's expectation that that pressure will push on the CEOs, the CEOs will push on their product organizations, their data scientists, etc., as they always have. But I think that creates this back pressure back to this tools on that shelf that you're talking about, where if chat GPT isn't going to, or Hugging Face isn't going to provide the things that we need, we're going to demand them as users. We're going to say, okay, what I actually need to be able to do is change the data set that this model is trained on. I need to somehow have a set of knobs that Let's my product tweak it or I need to be able to add my own data or I, I'm going to need to say like you need to be performant in I don't know 90 minutes otherwise I'm not using your product and I'm not putting you on my shelf so this back pressure from practitioners onto repositories maybe I want to bring my own model maybe I want to bring my own data but the features and functionality that these tools are going to have to provide. It's going to change a little. It's not going to be enough for you to give me a large language model. It's like, cool, now I want to control it because I have things I need to do with it. And your goals are different than my goals.
1: Then eventually that pressure will be released. Eventually there's going to be all of this pressure on the tools to have all of these capabilities. And we're going to build up all these expectations around them. And some people are going to build proprietary IP around that because they're going to figure out how to do it themselves. And that's going to be one way to release the pressure or the other way to release the pressure is going to be someone's going to step in and commoditize that piece. And then you just raise the level of abstraction one more level. And then now you're talking about working at this level and and then that's the expected competency. And then that pressure starts to build again as people have more and more complicated expectations at the next level of abstraction. Until someone steps in and commoditizes that level, and then and then so and so we go, and it's tails hold us time in the technology world, right? Yeah,
0: or as Richard Feynman said, it's turtles all the way down. Right, we, do, we just keep going. One of the things I think Sam, you've been really effective in is not just using open source tools, but also in making your voice heard, driving the people who are building and evolving those tools, take them in a direction that services more what you're looking for. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about your guidance to other people to get more out of the open source tools that they're relying on and then see like, what's the undiscovered country? How do you get teams to consider your conversation about like, oh yeah, and I'd like it to do this. So I'd love for you to show a light for fellow practitioners about how to really become an advanced citizen in open source.
1: You can have a similar conversation with vendor partners. It's not a wholly different conversation. You just usually speak a different language. You speak with money. And then those conversations are much easier to have. As you pointed out,
0: if you really want to commoditize things, it probably isn't with a proprietary vendor.
1: Yeah. But with open source, it's different. You have, I think, what you're talking about is steering, right? It's like how to be a part of these different steering committees. And those are like, for the more mature projects, like your sparks have their steering committees and stuff like that. I think that depending on the level of maturity where you are, for example, I've contributed to like different levels of maturity all the way from inception, like the Weevy 8 Spark Connector was, I think the first commits on that and like, very easy to steer that like I'm just going to commit to main, that's how I steer it. And then there's intermediate levels, I've contributed to Langchain in its infancy. And I think that at that level, it's different where I think that there's elevated expectations, I think that you have to speak to the maturity of the project, which I'm sure if I went and try to contribute to LangChain today compared to a few months ago, it's probably changed radically. And so understanding differing levels of maturity and where your requests are, that I think is one piece of it, is understanding what knobs you have at differing levels of maturity of a project. And then also, I think, understanding that you have the same goal as whoever's running that project is, you're trying to solve a problem. And I think that towing the line of solving your problem in a very specific and opinionated way, which is, I think, what an individual wants, because you're like, just do what I need and nothing else, because then it's perfect. And tailor and between that and being able to solve for people in the future, you have to have a mindset. And I think having that mindset, you kind of pick up on like the lingua franca of, of speaking in those settings of how do you talk about the future, how do you talk about right now, and how have it all be rolled up into one. It's an art more than anything, but I think being able to have those conversations and being able to reason through just the right amount of opinionation for the stage of the project you're in and solving like the immediate problems that are today, and also solving for problems of the future. I think that those are the tools that you have to put in your pocket. And if you can't, and you can't solve your problems with one project, then you just go write your own code and make it your own open source project. And like I said, it becomes very easy in those settings because you just do it yourself. Looking back in history and understanding some of the predecessors in your field, I think if you want to go look at an example of what I'm talking about as far as like the opinionated versus abstract. If people remember Metaflow, which was an open source Netflix project, Mm -hmm. which was like an ML ops solution all built on AWS, very opinionated. And it was opinionated so much so it was opinionated basically for Netflix. It was their ML ops stack. I don't think it really had the legs that... It could have because of it was so tailored towards one thing. I think you can look at other projects that try to do too much or you do a lot of things well and nothing really well. Go find examples of communities like that in the past and try to figure out which of the communities had a lot of shelf life and the path that they took as far as being very abstract compared to very solution oriented.
0: Thank you. Sure. And I can see your thinking and speaking face active. (laughs) And I know that you're spending a ton of time in this set of conversations here on the evolution of the stack and the ability to move on that with open source.
2: Yeah. I think we've been talking a lot recently about essentially that. How do we decide when to create your own community, contribute to an existing community? There are pros and cons of that. And Part of it is this idea of opinionation, right? We can see that companies like Netflix are using a bunch of different streaming technologies for a bunch of different purposes. And so if we're going to create something that depends on those streaming technologies, do you integrate with all of them but not contribute a functionality to any of them? So are you contributing connectors or are you... Open sourcing your own thing. So, these are some of the conversations we end up having a lot at the practitioner level is well, it would be easier if we didn't have to go build that community. But this is a little too opinionated for that specific project. So, now what?
0: <laughs> right. How do you so, find the other practitioners who are open to having that conversation with you? Right. One of the things I've often found is that the people who are running the project are going great guns. They've got a strong point of view. There may be only two or three of them, but they're working together every single day. And it can be very challenging to feel like you can even Bother them because you feel like they need to keep b- building what they're building, and are you going to introduce some wild speculation? So some of these things have to happen in user practitioner communities. So in your recent experience, how would you coach people who are trying to figure out if this is the right tool or not, or if this can become the right tool or not? How do you go and say like, "Hey, can we talk about this thing?" and and how do you structure that conversation?
2: So there's a lot of personal style in here and in this advice, and I, there are probably a hundred ways to do it. For me, because it's authentic to I try to show up. I want to come with some sort of an offer. People's time is precious. And if they're going to get on a call with me, I want for the conversation to be valuable for them and not just for me. So I often want to tell them directly like either, hey, we haven't met before, but I've seen you do these things. Your opinions are very strong in these areas. I have something I want to share with you. That could be a piece of writing. That could be an architecture diagram. That could be I've talked with a hundred different companies about this and I'm trying to make some choices. Can I get your opinion? And oh, by the way, do you want to participate? My personal style is to see what the other person cares about and then try to offer them that thing. That's a lot of work. If you just want to simplify it and go real fast, you could just put your thoughts out there and then point to it and say, like, can we have a conversation about this? You've spoken about it before. It's often a lot easier to get people to talk about things who have already talked about things. So I will often go and find the person who talked at like the apply conference and Walmart had a talk there. So I'll go reach out to the specific people who already share that information. And then they're l- more likely to talk with me, but I will also say, what are the degrees of connection that I have? And if I can't get to that person in my emails, just going to go by the wayside How many hops do I have to get to them? And it's usually not very far, especially if you're already participating in open source. You know someone who knows someone. Ask for the introduction. People love to help you. There's a lot of behavioral psychology around this. If you ask for help and someone helps you, they think better of you because you asked for help. So you just got to get over that. I'm asking something fear and just ask because people like to help.
0: That is was really, really good advice. I have a few pointy questions. One is, What do each of you feel pretty strongly that is missing in the stack you have today, right, that you'd like to see in a year to solve the class of problems that you're seeing or change the time scale to something that you think is reasonable?
1: Yes, the first thing that comes to mind for me is when you have lots of data, what we really have is we have really big haystacks and trying to get the needles out of them. and What I mean by that is very, very specific types of data that we are constantly looking for in the information retrieval world, which is very hard negatives. And I think that right now, there isn't really a good opinionated system and open source that really targets this problem. And it falls on the end user to solve it themselves. And so I think that... We end up tailoring these very much so depending on the project. And so I think that in our stack, having tools like that for finding evaluation data in an automated way is something that is very much so desired by me. It might just be like recency bias for me because I'm doing it right now. And at this very moment, I'm stuck between random sampling or integrating with my production system to get negatives out of it. And there's nothing in between. And having some sort of sampling mechanisms for us is we can get lots of data, we can get it in a timely manner with streaming, we can materialize it into ways we can get it cheap. And now the question of how do we get the really, really precious parts out of that data Is the problem in doing that at scale is really laborious. You almost have to like build models to find data for your models. It starts to make your head get hot.
0: So I ran across something really early stage that reminds me of what you're saying called dive plane recently. I don't know if you've taken a look at that, but this idea that the data is the model and building models to figure out where the data is, and then to be able to say, like, beyond just a sampling, can I render a whole bunch of novel? realistic, but synthetic data that's mathematically coherent with what you're looking for. Am I roughly in the right?
1: Exactly. That's exactly what I'm looking for. Right now, I've been looking at systems like learning to retrieve, which is like usually integrate with your production retrieval system. And that's how you get your hard negatives. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work when you're working on like hundreds of millions to billions to tens of billions of data points, and you have to make requests for each of them. It breaks down very, very fast when you start to get up to those scales. So yeah, I will I will definitely take a look at Dive Plane. I'll put it on my list.
2: I think that's a particularly hard problem too when you're just starting out and you don't even have <laughs> the piles of data. The haystack isn't there for you to search through, but you know it's a problem. You know you want to solve it. That sounds like if you could describe it to something like dive plane, you could certainly get from zero to one faster to even collect the data that we're talking about.
0: So Sharna, what about you? What would you like to see in the next end time units that is missing in the current stack?
2: I'm really tired of having to make three to five year tech infrastructure level technology bets. Like I really just want people to play nicely together and let me use all three streaming technologies if I want to. Let me use seven databases if I want to. And I just want to be able to say, this is, from my expert point of view, the features that I'm looking to produce, and then it just happens. But I don't need to go say, okay, this data is in this database, and this data is in this database. So to the point of sampling, right? Let's say that I, have a chat GPT interface that lets me say, all right, I need a training data set that spans this time period to this time period and is going to be able to answer these types of questions. Like, I want that. (laughs) That's too much in the first year. So I will take (laughs) a component that will let me bridge that gap between like offline online and i don't need to care where the data is coming from and the trade off of how it got there or what the application engineer decided to instrument it with or what have you like people are going to make choices for their particular use case an application engineer is going to choose one thing a machine learning engineer is going to choose another thing database engineer is going to choose another thing let them have their choices i need a different thing out of it and that is this support of my chaotic process. I'm more in the, I don't know what I need to know before I need to know it realm. And so I don't even know what needle I'm looking for. And I I want my system to support me looking for any needle.
0: (laughs) You're kind of evoking what we used to call middleware. I don't know if that's the common term anymore, but it feels like a middleware approach to feature Mm -hmm. stores. Simba Cotter is the the founder of a a technology and a company called Feature Form. And he articulated like three different modes for feature stores. One is a physical feature store, like this is where you're going to move all your data to. It's almost like a mini feature lake or feature house and then sort of a logical feature store. But then finally, this idea of a virtual feature store, kind of a middleware to say exactly what you said. I have no a priori ability to commit to one source or even one set of sources for the features let me draw those in here and how do those play nicely with the embeddings that i care about how does that then subsequently feed into my vector search so that i can get you a great ai powered application
1: Mm -hmm. experience goes back to what we talked about earlier, there's always that tension, right? There's that tension of you want to have all these degrees of freedom. You also want things to be useful. The first thing that came up to me when you were describing that was Apache Beam. And Apache Beam was the one who was like, no, 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 no. You want Spark, you want Gear Pump, you want Flink, I got you. You can do whatever streaming. And I don't know a lot of people who use Apache Beam today. Like, if I'm being brutally honest, it was one of the things I was most excited about the data flow paradigm, like all this stuff. They seem to really have it all together. And I don't know if it just ended up being like you try to be a jack of all trades and a master of none type of thing. But like, I tried to make it work for a number of different projects, and I ended up just being like, I'm just going to use Spark because it does its one thing and it does it really well. And as long as you can get things into a batch, be it a micro batch or a big batch, then you can do whatever you want with it.
0: Yeah, middleware is always difficult in, yeah. in exactly that way, right? That you're bridging the almost to our prior conversation, the abstract from the highly opinionated. And how do you come up with the right package of that that's useful for a really, really high number of people? That's one of the hardest problems in computer science. It's not one of the top two hardest problems, which is we all know are cache invalidation, naming things, and off-by-one errors. <laughs> all right, so let me, let me ask you a question that I, I really enjoy, which is, what does open-source data mean to you in the context of AI native?
1: I think of the internet. I guess I work at a search engine, so to me, it's like the data is everything. I work in large part on mostly open source data, because it's all just HTML that I turn into something that's kind of useful. And I think that to me, it really, I think, puts the onus on people who are more on like the product side and product strategy specifically, where you kind of enter this world where everyone has all of the data and everyone has all of these monetized AI models, and you can do anything with All the data is kind of open and there for you to use. What's going to really differentiate everyone is going to be your strategy and how you incorporate that data into your business model and how you use it. And so I think that long term, we're going to see this new breed of very creative entrepreneurs where the tools are all there. They've been there. People have figured out a lot of these things. And like you put the Legos together in a different, more creative way. You get something new. You make it useful to end users. You get them to pay for it. It's going to open up, I think, entrepreneurship to a larger group of people, hopefully like a really fresh, creative group of people in the long term.
2: That was really cool.
0: Berta, what does open source data mean to you?
2: Yeah, I like the path that Sam was going down here because sure, there's the open part of it. It's on the internet, so I can use it. However, I don't quite think of that as open source because when I'm... Really in my feelings about open source, I have values and things associated with this. So then when I kind of apply that to data, to me, it implies this ability to inspect and understand and most importantly, contribute and critique and change somehow to serve some purpose. And so there's a couple of values components I see associated with open source data that we're in some ways getting towards and in some ways not, right? To me, if I publish a blog, it's my content. Not everybody gets to use it. That may not be how other people feel about that. But how do we get to a world where not just the person who put the data out there, but other people that are about to use it for different purposes, if the data is the model, that might be impacted by the model or might be using the model in their day-to-day Get to this enabling contribution space. And that contribution may or may not be, let me give you my data. It may be instead, you give me the right way to look at your haystack so that I know what is in it and whether or not I can use it. I don't want to put the burden on every single person to understand what's usable and what isn't. To get to some of this contribution model, we have to provide actionable information for people to make choices, decisions, and contributions against, along with its purpose so that we can make those contributions in a community-oriented way.
0: That's really cool. I appreciate both of your answers. Sam's kind of reads on accessibility and yours reads on comprehensibility and the different sides of the scarcity abundance curve. So you've both been super generous with your thoughts and your time. And I have one last question to ask you, which is, with all this change and all the excitement with the heat going up, if you're in school, coming out of school, if you're early career, if you're excited about this work or transferring into it, how should people prepare for that transition? How should they train for this future?
1: My answer goes back to creativity. I think that when I went to school, it was all Algorithms, big O, all of these things that were very nuts and bolts. I don't know if they bred a lot of creativity. A lot of my school projects did not. There was a right answer, and there was maybe like four ways to implement it. And you picked one of them, and you made sure it was fast enough, and it was right, and you did well. I think that with a lot of the things that are coming out with large language models and a lot of these emerging capabilities, it is going to be much more about, again, using these things that are now. Very, very low barrier of entry and using them in really, really creative ways. I think you can take an open AI, I think you can take a lot of these GPTs or your CLAW, these big neural networks that can do many, many things. You're going to find they can do all sorts of stuff. You can find they can do classification tasks and you can build, you can. Solve a classification task with prompt engineering, and it used to take 50,000 lines of code. And I'm sure at the Googles of the world, it's millions of lines of code to do these things. And you can do it with 10 lines of code of Python and a prompt now. And so the surface area of problems you can solve now is just way wider at a much lower barrier of entry. And so again, I think that it's going to be about being creative and opening how you think about solving problems in a more holistic way instead of just via being efficient and being robust and all of these things that I think are very standard for engineering today.
2: When I was in school, I got a piece of advice early, early on that someone told me you wanted to be a T-shaped person. And then later in school, I got this advice that you want to be a pie-shaped person. Now by pie, I mean the letter pie, not a circle. this idea was that you would have something of depth and something of breadth, or you have two depths and this breadth across that connects them in some wavy sort of way, just in case one of your legs got cut off. <laughs> that's, that's what they said. It made me remember it because I was like, oh, I don't want to lose a leg. And you could always sort of like grow it back because you'd still have one deep specialization. And then sure, this one got chopped off, but you could grow another one. The advice still holds, but I think the legs and the breadth are different now. So if I were to train for a future where I need a shelf of a bunch of different tools that I can pick from, then my breadth is understanding what all of those things can do. It's more of a product landscape understanding. And my depth to Sam's point is in other types of creativity. Now, it may be I need an industry that I'm an expert in, and then I need something else that this creativity comes from. I am often a person who changes roles frequently. I've been a senior signal processing engineer at the defense industry, and I have been a VP of customer success at a tech startup. I didn't do that out of randomness. But I was able to do that out of staying connected to places like artists and communities that are not typical of tech. And so there's something about your creative something needs to come from somewhere. You have to excite the chaos of the system to be creative. You can't be rigid. And then you need a domain that you're an expert in. And then the rest of it, these are just lower barrier of entry tools that you should know about.
0: Thank you. Those are awesome answers. Steve Jobs used to say something along the lines of that Apple was born at the intersection of technology and the liberal arts. And I'm hearing more and more of that kind of zeitgeist in tech companies and in just tech processes in large established companies these days, which is how do I bring a little bit more liberal arts into the tech crunch that we have day-to-day that we have learned to take for granted. So thanks again to each of you. I really appreciate your time. I know this is going to uplift many of the practitioners and aspiring practitioners who are part of the open source data Podcast community, and I'm really grateful.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: I'm backstage with our executive producer, Audra Montenegro, to cover her takeaways from the second conversation in a two part series around the AI native stack. I thought this AI native stack panel was great, focusing on practitioners. I learned a lot, not just about the state of the art, but also where it needs to go and also the risks of being too opinionated versus too generalized if you're building or trying to influence an open source project. Audra, what stood out to you?
3: What stood out to me was the conversation around generative models and how Sharna was saying that you really need to find the micro intent of the user. And Sam was saying, well, there has to be some bias in order for this to work properly. And later talking about adopting these generative models in a company and how people will be receptive of it. So then Sharna pointed out the data scientist, okay, well, they're probably going to want to iterate on it and make it specialized to their needs, just like anything else. And I feel like both Sam and her related in that manner. And what it really always comes down to is the data and the quality of it. And it will always come down to that. And this stands out more for Sam working on a search engine at you.com. And then the open source aspects around it, which we touched on at the end, which was very different for our conversations. Sharna saying the ability to inspect, understand, and contribute to serve a greater purpose. And then Sam, I like how he says, oh, I just use HTML that turns something into what I need. and." I put it to the owners on the product side and voila.
0: I think exactly. that was a completely fresh take. And of course it is the secret of the internet, right? It was right. creating open source data that Tim Berners-Lee was originally effectively doing by creating HTML standard to say like, hey, you got a whole bunch of physicists. We got to stop shipping text and CSV files around. Perhaps we could hyperlink this stuff and yes. everyone could share the same data and inspect the results. So it was a really cool answer. Thank you so much, Audra.
3: Well, thank you. And of course, thank you to our audience for listening today.
0: Yeah, and if you like the show, please subscribe and give the podcast a five-star rating on your favorite platform. We'll be back soon with season five and so grateful to all of you for listening and making the show the success that it's become. And a very special thanks to the Caspian Studios team. Our producer, Alexa Minter, that's an M, not a W, that would be Winter. For program management, Vida Muri. And Kyle Ruska for audio and visual engineering, Calen Turnbull and Yaroslav Zukarchenko, as well as creative producer Landon Pontius. And of course, the Data Stacks folks like Arlene Goh on the content team and social leader Lauren Gohl. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you on the next season of Open Source Data.